We're continuing our our series this morning. Pastor Ed started last week as we're going to be looking through the book of Colossians. And he gave us the the intro, two verses, and an overview of the book. And this morning we're going to jump in to chapter 1. Well, several years ago, my wife Kristen and I, uh, we, we went to Mexico for our honeymoon. And we had left Chicago when we arrived there. And it's one of those things, at least for me, when I leave for a trip, it's not a matter of if I forgot something, but like, what did I forget? Right? And hopefully what I forgot isn't something very valuable and something that I can easily pick up somewhere else. And we had gotten there and and the first day we were headed down to go sit by the pool in the bright sunshine and I realized I had forgotten my sunglasses. Which, if you're in Chicago and you forget your sunglasses, isn't a big deal because you go for months at a time without using them. (laughs) But when you're on the beach in Mexico, it's something that you need. And so I went to the front desk and I asked them, you know, is there there a place close by that, that we could get to or do you have any? And they said, well, this evening, actually, there's vendors who are coming into to the resort area and they have all these different things set up and some of the stuff that vendors sell are sunglasses. So that's myself, all right, that's fine. I can wait till tonight. So we went that evening and went to look at all the displays of sunglasses and of course, all the other trinkets that tourists would want to pick up as a souvenir from their trip. And it's interesting, isn't it, how in certain places, name brand sunglasses are so inexpensive. (laughs) And even though they may tell you, oh, no, 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 these are real, these are the real thing. You're like, well, if this is real, I'm going to buy all these up and bring them back to the U.S. and make a lot of money. But I needed sunglasses, and even though I knew they weren't real or authentic, I just needed something to help me for the week. And so I bought a pair of blue Oakley sunglasses. The next day, we had uh, gone swimming in the, in the pool, and we were sitting outside um, in the sunshine. It was a nice, hot day. And I put my sunglasses on as we were relaxing, probably doing some reading. A few minutes later, um, I get up, and, and I go, and I talk to Kristen. And, and, and she looks over at me, and just this look of shock on her face as her jaw just is, like, wide open. Wait, man, I'm like, all right, that's not a normal look. What, what, why are you staring at me like that? And mixed in with the pool water and the sweat combination that was pouring down my face from my, from, my, uh, from my face that day on my blue Oakley sunglasses, mixed in with it was blue paint streaming down my face, <laughs> dripping off of my chin. See, I knew they weren't real, that they were fake, and it was clearly seen that indeed they were fake. Fortunately, that was the only time that happened, and I was able to use them for the rest of the trip, but not much after that. See, there's things in our lives that are fake, and sometimes that's a trivial and small thing that that wasn't authentic, and it did some damage or it cost something. But when it comes to the gospel, and that's where Paul jumps headfirst in this morning in Colossians, when it comes to the gospel, we're going to see this morning in Colossians chapter 1 that believing in a fake gospel does real damage to our lives. Believing in a fake gospel does real damage to our lives. And if you have your Bibles this morning, I would encourage you to open them to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 to 8 today. And as Paul starts off the body of his letter, he he gives a prayer of thanksgiving for the people to whom he's writing, the Colossians. 
And he writes them to thank God that the gospel that has been preached to them is the true, the authentic gospel, and to encourage them in what they've believed and how they're living. There was some false teaching that obviously had come towards these believers, that they were in doubt if if what they had believed was actually the truth, or were we missing something instead? But Paul wants to let them know that they have received the authentic gospel and to hold fast in that. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 say this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There's three signs of authentic faith that Paul points out in this passage. And the first sign of authentic faith this morning that we're going to look at is that we need to have belief in the core of the gospel. A belief in the core of the gospel is the first sign of authentic faith. And Paul is is thanking God and encouraging them that what he's heard reported to them is actually the core of the gospel that they've gotten right. So what is this core of the gospel that Paul so quickly summarizes here in these first two verses? There's three cores here that Paul looks at. The first core is faith in Christ Jesus. He thanks God for their faith in Jesus Christ. See, as Pastor Ed walked us through last week, there's so many great prepositions in the book of Colossians. And if you were here, we all read a lot on many of the passages where we said, in him or in Jesus. Well, right away, the object of the Colossians' faith is squarely placed in who? That they have faith in Jesus Christ. That's the core of their gospel. They have faith in Jesus. See, all of us have faith in something. Everyone is placing their faith in something. Whether you're a Christian, whether you consider yourself religious or a follower of another religion, everyone is placing their faith in something. For fulfillment, for joy, for purpose. Maybe it's Jesus, but maybe you've placed your faith in yourself or other people, your career. All these different things are objects on which we could place our faith. Everyone's placing their faith in something. So when it comes to faith, what matters is not so much how much faith you have, but what you're putting your faith in. When it comes to faith, it doesn't matter so much if I have a lot of faith or a little faith, but the object on which my faith itself is actually placed. A few months ago, I, uh, I went out to leave to head into church in the morning um, on a weekday morning, and I got out into my car, and I have one of those, um, the cars where the, the start button is just a start button. You don't have to twist, which still is a little weird to me with this new technology. So I get in, and I hit the start button, and my dashboard lights up, and nothing else happens. I go, huh, that's not supposed to happen. All right, um, get out. Turn on, okay, it looks like some of the headlights are working. Looks like the taillights are working. I start looking. Is it something with the key, with the remote? I, I, I pause for what seems like a long time, was probably 10 seconds, and I try it again, and it's nothing again. Go, huh, all right, probably need a jump. 
So I text uh, one of my neighbors who's a member of this church and they bring their car around and we get the cables out and we plug the cables up to each other's battery. I'm gonna give this a jump and this is gonna fix it. So you, you let the battery run for a little while, the, the car run, you get in, I get in my car, I hit the button again, nothing, it's dead. Now at that moment, they, they picked their stuff up, they went back to their house, continued on their day. At that moment, I could have kept trying, I could have kept getting in the car and hitting the start button, but I couldn't, I couldn't have just asked for more faith and had it start. Right? What I didn't need in that moment was more faith that my car would start. What I needed was a new battery. Right? What I needed was something that was reliable. It wasn't how much faith I had, but the object on which my faith is placed. And if you're placing your faith for purpose, for significance, for salvation on something other than Jesus, it's ultimately going to let you down. It doesn't matter how much faith you have in that thing. You could have a ton of faith, but ultimately if your faith is not placed in the correct thing, it will just lead to disappointment and despair. The object of our faith is placed on Jesus Christ. The second core of the gospel that Paul shows them here is love for the saints. You have a love for all the saints. Pastor Ed reminded of us this last week, saints in the Bible is not a special category of super Christianese people, but saints are simply everyone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And he says that their love for the church for the body of Christ is so evident and seen by everyone around them that even Paul's heard of it. See, the, the gospel doesn't just place our faith in something, but it transforms our very desires and motives so that we would love the people that God has placed around us. Namely, here he focuses on the church. An example of this type of love that Paul talks about is actually the kind of love that Paul himself has for these people. See, we, we know that Paul didn't go to this city to start this church. Someone else preached the gospel here, most likely Epaphras. We also know that while Paul writes this letter to these people that he's never visited, he's in jail. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in jail for preaching about Jesus, and I'm writing to people, the letters are going to be short, and they're going to contain about two words. Help me. Right? Help me get out of here. I didn't do anything. Get me out of here. And it would be focused. That's our natural inclination. But here's Paul. He's in prison for preaching the gospel, and his love for God's people is so overwhelming that he's writing a letter to people he's never even met before to encourage them. That's what love for God's people looks like. It's a love that goes out of its way that when people would think it would be self-centered is others-centered, looking out for others and reaching out even in the midst of his own pain and hardship and difficulty. The third core of the gospel that's seen here in this short statement is that the hope that his people have in heaven. The hope that these people have in heaven. This, these three things, the, this faith, hope, and love, they often go together throughout the New Testament, especially in many of Paul's writings. But what's interesting here in verse 5 is this is the only place in Scripture where hope is actually the basis for the faith and love that people are to have. 
hope, the hope that believers have is the basis for the faith in Jesus as well as for our love for others. And our hope can be the basis for these things because it's a hope that it says is laid up for you in heaven. Laid up. Some translations would would call that word a hope reserved for you or set aside for you in heaven. The same word is used in another place in the New Testament to talk about a coin, a valuable coin that's taken and someone hides away so that's impossible for anyone ever to steal or to mess with. It is entirely secure. That's the hope that you and I have who place our faith in Jesus. Sometimes we think our hope is a feeling that we have about the future. But our, our hope is not a feeling. Our hope is an objective reality of who God is and what we have waiting for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have hope today, whether you feel like it or not. Because your hope is not dependent on your feelings, it's dependent on Jesus, and he has reserved it, laid it up for you in heaven. Paul overwhelms with thanksgiving that he sees these signs of the core of the gospel lived out among their church. If Paul were to hear a report of Moody Church in Chicago, would he thank God for these same things? Are we obvious that our faith isn't in things of the world or things of this culture, but our faith's in Jesus? Would he comment on how it's so obvious the love that's in this place that we have for each other? And are we people that it's obvious that we're not hoping for this world, but we're hoping for the one to come? And that's where our expectations are. Paul thanks God that they've understood this core of the gospel, faith in Jesus, love for the saints, and a hope in heaven. He continues at the end of verse 5, and he says this, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. The word of the truth, the gospel. And the second sign of authentic faith that Paul encourages this church that he's seen in their lives is that they've submitted to the truth of the gospel. Is that we would submit to the truth of the gospel. See, the truth, contrary to what our world may tell us, the truth is not whatever you want it to be. It doesn't make sense. It just logically doesn't hold together. We can't have our own truths and for them to actually be true. Truth has an objective reality, and we believe as followers of Jesus that objective reality is based on who God is and what he says is true. And that he has proclaimed that the gospel is truth itself. The gospel, the good news that Jesus came and saw us in our sin— died for us on a cross, defeated death by rising from the dead, and that by simply putting our faith in Jesus rather than through our own works, we can have salvation in him. The gospel is the truth. And he wanted this church to know that what they've believed is indeed true. The teaching that was coming in to this church in Colossae was most likely not teaching that was radically different than what they had heard already. 
It probably wasn't coming in and saying, reject Jesus, that's not the way. But the teaching that was coming in was, was infiltrating through their ranks because it sounded a lot like the gospel that they had heard, but it had subtle twists to it. It had little perversions on the side that, that indeed actually changed the core of the message. And this is teaching that's so dangerous, not just 2,000 years ago, but the same kind of teaching that's dangerous in our world today. It's easy to spot the, the teachings that are totally against God's word and against Christianity. But sometimes we fall into error, not because of teachings like that, but because of those that just take a subtle twist on the truth of God's word. See, if you were working at a restaurant or, or a shopping mall and someone came to, to purchase some merchandise and it came to be about $8 or so and they wanted to pay for that merchandise and they took out something like this, you probably wouldn't accept it, right? You would say, um, don't pass go, do not collect $200 and please go straight to jail. Like, no. I'm not crazy. I'm not going to take your monopoly money. Right? That, that doesn't make sense. No one would accept this for an actual $10 bill. Some false teaching is like this. It stands in stark contrast, and it's easy for us to see that this isn't the truth revealed to us in God's word. But sometimes counterfeit religion looks more like this. And one of these is a counterfeit dollar, and the other one's real. And in fact, the article that I was reading about this said that really the only way you can actually tell which one's real and which one's not is not based so much on how it looks, but actually on how it feels. It's the bottom one, by the way, because I knew you'd be going nuts if you didn't know that. It's the bottom one that's fake. And the thing is, oftentimes with counterfeit teaching that can come into our world, it looks a lot like the truth. It can look a lot like the real deal. And if we're not careful, we can just accept it as the truth without actually inspecting it closely. The gospel is the truth. And we need to be guarding the truth in our lives and inspecting the messages that we hear from our world and if they actually line up with the truth of God's word. It's so important. It's why Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, and told him to watch your life and doctrine closely. I think we often at church, if you're a Christian at church, we focus a lot on this. Watch your life closely. But Paul encourages, watch your doctrine closely. Because these affect one another. What you believe about God affects how you live your life. And if we have the truth of the gospel, then we need to make sure we are watching our lives and our doctrine closely. Simply put, if anyone tries to add something to the gospel or take something away from God's word, do not walk but run away from that teaching. If people try and add on, well, yes, Jesus, but, but what about this? Or, or what was in their day, it was this extra experience of salvation. So you can place your faith in Jesus, but if you mess with this, that will really enhance your Christianity. But friends, run away from that kind of teaching. We need Christians today in our world 
We are flooded with more information and teaching than any people in the history of the world. Never has it been more essential that every message that we hear, we ask, is that the truth of God's word or the truth of man? See, the truth of man doesn't always line up with the truth of God's word. The truth of what you see on cable news doesn't always line up with the truth of God's word. The truth in the movies and music all over, it doesn't always line up. The truth that you may even hear preached at a church from a pastor doesn't always line up with God's word. Check everything you hear with the truth revealed in this word. No man, no woman is infallible. Only God and his word is. Once we acknowledge that the truth is the gospel, that indeed we we have come to be convinced that the gospel is true and should be the authority over our lives, the call for us when we get to that point in our heads is to submit to it with our lives. That we need to submit to the truth of God's word. See, we get around submitting to God's word in a few different ways. But I think for me, one of the ways that I've seen a lot in other people and even in my own life is this. As we read God's word, we are really good at reading it and thinking how this applies to other people. And we're pretty poor sometimes at realizing how this applies to ourselves. Right? You read a passage and you're like, love one, and you're like, man, if my husband or wife would read this, they need this passage. Right? You read a passage on respect and obedience, and you're like, my children need to know what God's word says. You read a passage on kindness, and you want to send it to your boss, and then ask for vacation time off right after you send it. Right? Other people need to know this truth that I found in God's word. We often get around applying God's word to ourselves when we have that attitude. I came across this quote in a book that I'm reading by a pastor, and he says this, If reading the Bible causes me to scrutinize others more than I scrutinize myself, then I am not reading the Bible correctly. If when you read the Bible, you scrutinize other behaviors rather than yourself, you haven't read the Bible correctly. And God has been pushing this in on my heart because I've seen this attitude happen in my life way more than I would want to admit. See, I love my job. I get to read and study the Bible as part of my job. I think I have the greatest job in the world. I love being a pastor. But what I can excuse myself into saying is part of preaching a sermon and reading God's word is thinking about how to help other people apply that truth of the gospel to their lives. And it can be so easy for me in my reading to be like, oh, yeah, this applies to people in so-and-so scenario. And people like this need to trust God. And people like this need to love others. And that sometimes God just smacks me across the face and says, what about you? Where do you need to change before you get up and preach in front of others? Friends, when we read the Bible, what does it say not about others, but what does it say about me and my sin and my brokenness? See, the gospel is to be a mirror into our hearts, not a spotlight onto others. The gospel should first be a mirror into my own heart, exposing my own sin, my own pride, my own selfishness, 
not a spotlight onto the people around me in my life. Verse 5 says this, and we're going to continue to the end. It says this, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Verse 6, Which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras is likely the man who brought this good news of the gospel to the people in Colossae. He was probably a convert hearing the preaching of Paul. Scholars would estimate probably at Ephesus and brought this good news of the gospel back home. And because Paul himself hadn't been there, he goes through strong language here to commend to them the message and the messenger of the gospel that they've received. Epaphras isn't just someone who's brought it. He is the fellow servant and faithful minister of God. And he's commending them that this gospel you heard is sound. It says that they learned it from him. Most times when Paul talks about receiving the gospel, it's you believed it or you heard it. Learned is this deeper expression of the fullness of faith. Epaphras taught them the deep truths of God's word. And he made it known to them. And this third sign that we see here in this passage of, of the authentic gospel is that people have experienced the power of the gospel. That we have experienced the power of the gospel in our lives. It says this in verse 6 again. It says that the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. These are descriptives of what the gospel is. This is simply what the gospel does. Everywhere it faithfully goes, it bears fruit and it increases. It bears fruit and the gospel increases. So the power of the gospel here is seen in two ways in verse 6. The first way the power of the gospel is seen is in the personal transformation of our lives. The personal transformation of our lives. Now it doesn't simply mean that the moment you placed your faith in Jesus, you were transformed, although it certainly does include that. But what it's saying is this ongoing, day by day, month by month, year by year, transformation of those who follow after Jesus. See, if the gospel isn't changing you, you are not following the gospel. Not if the gospel hasn't changed you, but if the gospel still, today, isn't continuing to change you, you're not following the gospel in your life. Because we should be able to look back, as we read this morning, not that we're perfect, but we should be able to look back in our lives. Are we different than we were six months ago? Are we following Jesus more than we were than a year ago? Are we trusting God more than we were two years ago? This idea of bearing fruit is an expression throughout the Bible that our lives would look more and more like Jesus. Galatians says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Are we seeing that more and more in our lives? 
Because the gospel produces that naturally. It increases our transformation ongoing in our lives. Not only does the gospel increasingly transform our lives, but the second power of the gospel seen here is in the worldwide growth of the gospel. The worldwide growth and spread of the gospel. The language in this passage here is actually reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1. Where when mankind was created, the command for them was to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. The imagery here is that the gospel will be fruitful and increase and fill the earth just as mankind was commanded by God to do. And Paul attesting to this worldwide spread of the gospel, it adds to the validity that the gospel is indeed true. See, the gospel is not bound by one time or people group or culture or language, but it transcends all of that. And that adds to the validity of the truthfulness of it because it's not just for a particular people in a particular place who say a particular language, but it's for all people. The gospel is to go. It's to grow. It's to spread throughout our world. It's to spread throughout our city. If the gospel is to be both bearing fruit, seeing personal transformation, and the gospel is to be growing, spreading out, reaching those who don't know Jesus in our world, then that should be the mission of both of our lives and the mission of the church. In your life, are you being faithful in seeing the gospel transform your life? In seeing the Spirit work in you in ways that you would never imagine? And are you participating in what the gospel is that it goes out and it increases in our world? Are you not just thinking about sharing your faith, but you're praying about it and then you're actually using the words to do it? Because the gospel must go forth. It's too good to be contained. As a church, that should be our focus as well. Both of these are intrinsic to what the gospel is. But sometimes we like to focus as Christians so much on one that it takes our church away from the other. And there's danger in that. See, we could become so focused on personal transformation, just seeing people's lives continue to grow deeper and deeper and deeper, that we could forget that right outside this building are hundreds of thousands of people that are lost without Jesus but we're so focused on ourselves that we miss them. At the same time, we could be so focused on reaching out into the world that we could miss the fact that Jesus called us to make disciples, that we should grow deep, that our faith should continue to transform our hearts. Now, our church needs to be about both of these. And sometimes our personal preferences want to push towards one or the other, but we need to keep both of these in line. This is where God's gospel is. It grows throughout the world and it changes our lives continually. Well, for all intents and purposes, if you would have looked at the life of a woman named Kesha Williams, you would have thought she lived a luxurious life. She looked successful. She had trips. She had money. But underneath it all was a scam. See, she had come up with a scam that she was waiting for medical software to come over from Europe. 
and she enlisted people in the U.S. to give her enough money that she would bring this software over and it'd be such an incredible investment that after the software was brought over, they would get their money back and much more with an investment in this company. And so she started soliciting people and she started getting not just thousands, but actually millions of dollars to do this. Yet when people started calling her, she had all these different stories. She told one person, well, I'm at a hospital in Dallas working at bringing this technology here, when in reality she was in the middle of a $75,000 trip to Jamaica. She called one California businessman who she conned out of $1.5 million dollars told him that that she was stuck in Europe, that she was detained, and she needed $150,000 to go see her dying grandma, when in reality she had just gotten back that day from Bora Bora and was planning a yacht vacation from Miami. She asked this man to send him his social security check, and he did while she was on a $200,000 vacation through Italy. And finally, it all came to light. And she was exposed as a fraud, and she was sentenced a month and a half ago to 15 and a half years in prison for the scam that she had run by so many people. Over 50 different people were scammed by her to believe in this fake story that she told. One of them was a 71-year-old cancer survivor. One was a special needs teacher at a public school. One was a recent widow. And they had been faked by something. They had fallen for it and it had cost them their life savings. Falling for a fake gospel won't just cost you your life savings, it will cost you your life. Falling for a fake gospel, believing in something other than what the Bible says is the way to God, won't just cost you your savings, it will cost you your very life. And Paul, as he starts this letter, wants to affirm to the Colossian believers what the authentic and true gospel is, and he praises God that they have received it and believed it as so. What are you putting your faith in this morning? The essence of the gospel is faith in Jesus. It's not works. It's not church attendance. It's not what family you come from, but it's faith in Jesus. Where's your faith this morning? I would invite you to place your faith in Jesus. He has done what only he could do by saving you from your sin. He paid the penalty. He died on the cross. He has defeated death and rose from the dead and invites you to stop trying to do it yourself but to put your faith in him. As we close today, and as I pray, if you want to place your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you to, in the quietness of this moment, cry out to him. He will hear you. He will always love you. God, we thank you for the good news that's found in Jesus Christ. That through faith in him, We have love for your people. We have hope. God, for anyone this morning who's realizing that their faith isn't securely in you, but are in other things of this world, God, give them the ability 
the courage to trust you today. That today would be their day of salvation where they would place their faith squarely on Jesus Christ. We thank you that when we place our faith on you, we will never be disappointed. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.